0: We sang a song just a little while ago that if God is for us, and so I ask you that question, is God for us? Is God for you? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you believe that God is for you? I recognize that some people don't feel. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It just I don't feel that God is for me. But God is for you. God would have never sent His Son into this world if you were not on His mind and heart and He was not for you. And because He is for you, I ask this second question, and I think this is a little murkier. Is God for Annapolis? Does God care an iota about our city? And I understand, depending upon how you were raised the background that you come to, the churches that you've been part of, that some might question God's intent and His heart toward the city, toward our city. I just want you to know that our text is going to teach us that God is for our city. That literally He is for every city. Maybe not exactly like He is for you, but He is for our city. Kathy and I love Annapolis. We believe it's the best place we have ever lived. And not just simply because you live here. But because our city. There are a lot of things about our city that are that is wonderful and beautiful and enjoyable. This part of the country is unique. We've lived in lots and lots of places. I wasn't even in the Navy. But I have loved this city. Annapolis is not a geography for us. That is, when people ask when I travel, where are you from? I don't say Severna Park. Nobody's going to have an idea where that is. But our orientation is toward Annapolis. And so we proudly say we're from Annapolis. Our orientation, whether you live in Millersville or you live in Edgewater, your orientation is this city. And it's important for you to know that not only is God for our city, we should be for our city. You and I are spread out. Though we gather on Sunday, we are dispersed all over this area geographically. Some in academia. I mean, gracious, we've got three colleges. Some in medicine. National security, government, and business. We're also spread out into every neighborhood. I can't think of a neighborhood in our area that we don't have people who live in as part of being part of a large church. But God has scattered us. Therefore, we are well positioned to take what is God is doing best in here out there. The way that the New Testament describes this is calling us a salt. In the world. That is, we are the salt of the earth. And you know this about salt. Salt was never meant to be a main course. If you go to a restaurant and you make an order of salt, they're going to tell you that's not a meal. Not only is it not a meal, it's not good for you. But a little bit of salt on almost any entree makes the entree better. That's what we are. Salt is best as a minority in a majority setting. Now think about that just for a moment. Because that's what Jeremiah is going to get at. Salt is better as a minority in a majority setting. That is, we have been sprinkled all over our community in order to bring... Something better. What our text will call the welfare, the shalom, the peace, the wholeness, the health of our city. Well, how can we be salt? How can, how can we be a salt in Annapolis? Our text answers that question by identifying there are three agendas in every city. God planned for it to be like that. But there's also It shows us that there are two cities in every city. Because God also planned that. And that he's only going to give us a single hope for every city. So with that in mind, let me draw your attention uh, to the opening words again. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priest and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. The context is set for us. The superpower of this day when Jeremiah is written is Babylon. In fact, it's literally called Babylon the Great. That's not a a brag it just was it'd be like saying what is the superpower today it would be the united states the most powerful military in the world that was true of babylon but not just about its military but about its culture about its finances about its business about every arts and science everything about the world babylon was great And one of the ways in which Babylon became great was it did something different than the Assyrians did. It was something different than the Greeks will do and something different than the Romans will do. Babylonians, when they conquered a people, they took the best and the brightest and brought them to Babylon. And 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 sometimes if the community was small enough, like Israel... Because the t- northern ten tribes are long gone from the Assyrians. All is left is these two tribes in Judah. And so, first, he takes the best and the brightest, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. But he also takes the rest of the people in a, in a couple of different waves, and he settles them back in Babylon. Why? Because he wants... This is the first agenda. The reason Babylon became so great is they assimilated all the cultures that they conquered. Rather than destroy them, rather than obliterate them, or rather than erase them, they absorbed them. They were the original culture that came up with the idea of "out of many comes one." So, on all of your coins, the United States didn't come up with that. Babylon the Great had that idea that we would we would become great not by conquering, but by assimilating. That our culture every time would change just a little bit because their greatest value was pluralism. Long before that word was ever used in today's culture, it was being applied in their culture. That is, you can have any view you wanted as long as you adopted ours too. That was their version of assimilation. In fact, if, you, if you're really looking for a text that really helps you understand what's going on here in Babylon, you have to go to the book of Daniel. Verse 2, where it says it took the best and the brightest early on. Some of them were Daniel and his friends. And they go off to Babylon, and Babylon says, Hey guys, we're going to give you a Babylonian ideal League education. And after you're done with your four years and maybe you stay for an MBA, we're going to give you government jobs. We're not going to give you just any jobs in the empire. We're going to give you key jobs in government. And all we ask you to do is adopt us as your people. Adopt our values, adopt our culture, adopt our arts, our sciences that you learned in school. The only thing we ask you not to do Is to reject us. To reject our values. Reject our culture. Reject our way of thinking. Reject us. Because it'll get ugly for you if you do. And that's exactly what happens to Daniel and his friends. They, they received the education. They got into the government places, but they couldn't accept the pluralism, the culture of the Babylonians. And so what happened was they became the haters. They became the bigots. They became the outsiders and they were persecuted. For not adopting the Babylonian values. Well, that's assimilation. And that goes on in every city. It goes on in every culture. And that's part of the plan. Because the second one is a rejection of that. A response to that. When the Jews were brought into Babylon, their first orientation to their occupiers, it was to separate. Literally, physically they set up camp outside the city in tents because they didn't want to build any buildings. They didn't want to start any educational institutions. They didn't want to get married. They didn't want to have children. They didn't want to marry anybody. They didn't want to have children. And so they separated from the culture because they didn't think they were going to be there very long. Because that's exactly what the prophets and the diviners were telling them. They weren't going to be there very long. Verse 8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, Because they were dreaming, this isn't going to last. It's all going to burn up. God's going to rain fire down on Babylon. Because they're the oppressors of God's people. Don't worry about getting married. Don't worry about marrying off your children. Don't even have children. Don't build houses. Don't plant gardens. Because we're not going to be here that long. So separate. Now they were there 70 years. It's two whole generations. The diviners weren't just wrong. They were harmful to the people. Because not only did they say God's going to destroy this place, they also said we're glad about it. We're stoked that these people are going to burn up as the oppressors of God's people. And so some of the Jews exploited the resources of the Babylonians. They got the education. They got their food. They got everything that they could get from the city. But then they spurned the city and the people that lived there. They accepted the gifts of personal gain, but they hated the giver. And that kind of philosophy allows you to smile on the outside, but disdain the culture on the inside. Others, they, they take a public stand. Not only, some you could call it a passive aggressive approach. To separation. Others took a more proactive, more of a militant perspective and literally uh, said, you're the bad guys. That's not too different than some of the people that occupied pulpits after 9-11 said that this is your fault. You sinners, this is God's judgment on a nation that's in sin. You see, that kind of worldview, it was going on then and it's going on now. It's no smile at all. Because all the disdain on the inside has come out on the outside. It's not passive-aggressive. It's just aggressive. And God knows that. It's in, in every city. It's in every community. Every nation. Every culture has assimilation and separation. And so God sends this letter and says, let me give you a third way to live as a follower of mine in a city that doesn't share your values. As a minority culture... Inside of a majority context that might be pluralistic, that might be uh, opposed to your values, in fact, will punish you for having different values. Well, this agenda is described in verses four through six in the letter itself. The context thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat in their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage and that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. What is God saying? I wish sometimes we could get a synopsis. Here it is. I placed you there, now flourish there. I sent you there in that amazing that's so troubling to the ancient world, and it's so troubling in the modern day. We have a little heartache, and all of a sudden we lose all of our theology about the sovereignty of God. That is, we'll have a debate about the sovereignty of God, but when it comes to practically living in today's world, we give it all up. We say it's choice or bad choice. We say, we say it's a coincidence. We never say, God placed me here, right here in Annapolis. You, you thought you chose your job. You know God had to orchestrate a lot of things to get you into that job. The neighborhood you live in, you think, I chose this neighborhood because of this and this and this. God had to organize a lot of stuff to get you there. Right where he wants you. Including the church you're now sitting in. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's the plan of God. Because he says it twice, just in case we don't get it. I placed you there. Not only did I place you there, I placed you there for a reason. Imagine how shocking and scandalous these words are to them. When he says in verse 7, Now I want you to seek at shalom. That's what that word welfare means. I want you to seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. Shalom means peace. But it means more than peace. It means wholeness and health and And this whole idea of a healing of the brokenness of a city in which you live. That's why you're here. That's why you're planted here. That's the purpose of the church. Some say, no, the purpose of the church is worship. Do you know where there's better worship than here? No, don't say Bay Area. (laughs) Heaven. Heaven has superior worship to anything on earth no matter how many resources we put into it if God's purpose is to have perfect worship then the moment you become a Christian you're dead and transported into the heavenly choir where nobody makes a mistake where all the notes are perfect and nobody forgets their lines I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to worship but he could get better worship there Well, what is it that can only be done here? Working for the welfare of the city. Working for the shalom of our city. Working for the healing of the brokenness that we see on our city. That can't be done in heaven. It can only be done here. It's the purpose of the church. The way the Bible often says it is mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I also want you to teach them all that I have commanded Yes, I'm going to go with you, but you got to go. At least across the street. We're seeking the shalom. And then he goes on and he says, I don't want you to just work and seek the welfare. I want you to pray. Look at that verse 7. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Why should we seek and pray for the shalom, the wellness, the health of our city? Because, verse 7 says, For in its shalom you will find your shalom. Do you get that? We think we can find our shalom apart from our city. It is God's plan for God's people to enjoy shalom through the shalom of the community in which they sit. Wow, that's amazing. We thought we could just separate, draw the the drawbridges up. We can isolate ourselves. We can create our own monastery. We can come in here where it's safe. And God is saying, if you do that, and that is your goal, then you miss the mission of God. Because the welfare of the city is how we get our own welfare. It's all the work of the Spirit. It's all of grace. It's all of the gospel. But the way that that happens is the city prospers. We do too. In the way that the Bible talks about prosperity. God asks them, this is the amazing thing. God's asking them to do this for Babylon while the blood of their friends and family are still stained on the hands of their captors. That's not... There literally were hundreds and thousands of people who died in the conquering of Jerusalem that didn't make the trip back to Babylon. And so the stain of the blood on the hands of their captors in Babylon, they're now working for their welfare, for their shalom. No wonder Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. That shouldn't be any surprise to us. How can we do any less for Annapolis? How can we do less for a city that for most of us, if not all of us in this room, doesn't carry the blood of our friends and relatives? God says, don't listen to your prophets that rail against the city, that talk about how awful it is and you need to avoid it and flee. I sent you there. Commit your life for the welfare of those who don't know Jesus in your city. Because that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He came for us. There's not one person in here who was for Jesus. In fact, he had to come for those who weren't for him because he was for them. This is God's agenda for the church. To be a minority culture inside a majority culture. The way, to, the best I can describe that in order to understand the values, difference between those two cities, where one is supposed to operate inside the other, is, is to talk about the two cities. And you say, well, what are two cities? Augustine in the fifth century. This is pretty much after every major city in the Roman Empire had been Christianized. I don't mean they were all Christian. It just meant that there was a presence of the church in every major Roman city then. He wrote a little book called The City of God. And in it, he said this. The history of the world is a tale of two cities. Here's the key line. One city living inside all the other cities. One is the city of God. And the others are the city of man. And he says the city of man is represented by Babylon. Matter of fact the Bible picks that up in the book of Revelation and calls the city of man Babylon the Great. And it has two distinctive marks or two distinctive values that are up against gospel values, the values of the city of God. And one is drivenness and the other is selfishness. The drivenness of the culture of the city of man is to try to achieve, achieve status and power and wealth And love and beauty and even morality. But why? Why does the city of man need these things? Because you and I were made to matter, to have import, to have significance. And we were made to have security, to be fixed. And because those are in us and we don't have those by nature in a broken world, we're always seeking them. We want them. I want them. Heck with the rest of the world. I need them. And if I need them, don't you need them? And if you need them, don't you think the rest of the world needs them? Don't you feel that every day you're waking up trying to, 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 to answer the question, do I matter? Does anybody know? Does anybody miss me if I'm not around? And so we become driven toward answering that question. But also the idea of, of security. Am I safe? Is this world safe? Is God safe? The Bible calls this idolatry. I know that's hard in the 21st century to use a word like idolatry. You think that's something in the ancient world deals with and not in the modern world. But we do too because idols are simply good things that become ultimate things to us. Things that are in our lives that are, that are good. There's nothing wrong with status and position and, and success and prosperity. In fact, the Bible's filled with those things. But when we make them our ultimate things, that's when we're driven to those things. The other value that's in the city of man, that the city of God does not share is selfishness, self-centeredness. This idea that Annapolis is here for me, I'm not here for Annapolis. And so in that world, in in order to get what you're driven to have to achieve, you're willing to step on other people to get there. The prevailing philosophy is simply... The world doesn't exist. I don't exist for the world. The world exists for me. And though, therefore, relationships are utilitarian and transactional in the city of man. And so over against that is the city of God. You can see that in Babylon. In the city of God, over against that, you have the gospel. That instead of this driven culture that's all around us, we have a restful culture. We rest because our identity and our security are fixed by Christ fixed in two ways fixed because that which was broken is healed but fixed because it doesn't change those are the realities of the gospel you are mine says the Lord and that can never change because God is not a liar that he's sh- a man that he should lie nor is he a son of man that he should repent has he not said and will he not do it the minute God lets you down in, in any way of what he has promised, then he ceases to be God. And that's the reason I can say that, is he's never let anyone down. That doesn't mean he doesn't give us all that we want, but he does give us all that we need. And so the natural question in the house is simply, how could Paul be included, but not Gandhi? You say, well, I never even thought of that. But you, you ask it this way why is that person in the city of God and that person still in the city of man? Why, why do some people get into the city of God and others don't? Well, people spend their whole lives trying to achieve God freely gifts. Status and security. Jesus did not come to draw good people. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. He's not after good people to come to Him. Christ came for those who knew they were terrible. The worst kind. Why? Why would God pick such an upside-down nature to who gets into the city of God? Think about it just for a minute. If if you're good and and you've achieved status and security and, and, and you've got your significance, you don't need God. You've already got it. Who is it that needs it? Than the people who don't have it. It doesn't seem fair, I know. It doesn't seem logical, I get that. But this is where Augustus Toplady actually gets it when he says in his hymn Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come for dress. Helpless I look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. What, what, what does Augustus Top Lady get? That sometimes we struggle getting. And that's this, that all the fitness that God requires is that you just need Him. And if you've already arrived and you don't need Him, the gospel's for those who know they can't get there. And so He had to come. This is what Flannery O'Connor, and I love her quote. All you need for salvation is the need that makes it necessary. Oh, that we would hear that. Oh, that we would believe that. Oh, that we would live it. In the city of God, there is shalom because we are at rest of who we are. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with our identity. That's the reason we did uh, uh, renew is because even here, we struggle with our identity and need to be reminded of who we are. But we do have Shalom. We have rest in the finished work of Christ. In the city of God, there's no Shalom. It's broken. The city of Man is broken therefore we are sent into the city of man as the city of god inside therefore the city of god cannot be geographical the city of god is beautiful it is countercultural and it is life-giving but it can never be over or against the city of man it always has to be for the city of man But to what end? So that the city of man can see the beauty and the goodness and the life-giving heart of our God. Because he has designed that the only way that people see that God is good and beautiful and life-giving is through his people that he has already given life. Therefore, we seek the welfare, the flourishing, or the wholeness of our city. Abraham Kuyper, when he became Prime Minister of the Netherlands, made this statement. God looks at all of his creation, every square inch, and declares mine. We have been called to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. Every early Christian understood that. And though in the beginning they were persecuted, eventually they enjoyed the favor of the people. Tim Keller says this. By 400 A.D., most of the Roman citizens became Christian. Not by taking over the culture through the acquisition of power. They were given power through their service. The mark of any city of God is when its citizens become the very best citizens of the earthly cities. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If you read history books, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world are those who thought the most of the next. Nicholas Christoph, who is not a believer, but a, a journalist for the New York Times, said this. I think it is intellectual suicide for a secular person to criticize evangelicals for having no positive contribution to society. He said, everywhere I go, whether it's Haiti, Houston, Puerto Rico, places of injustice where sex trafficking and human slavery happens, where genocide and disease are killing the people, it is evangelicals, Bible-thumping Christians... Who are first to show up and last to leave. And then he goes on in that article and says... And their wallets are more open than anyone else's. What if all the journalists started saying that about evangelical Christians? Not just in the world of poor where we get associated and rightly so. But also in the world of the workplace and academia. In the arts and medicine and business and in the neighborhoods in which we live. If you're skeptical, and I understand that, you read the papers, you see the news, and you're skeptical about what Christians have been able to do and what they have done, I ask you to get beyond the narrative that the media teaches us and just do a little research yourself. Maybe you're science-oriented. Did you know there's the director of the National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins... He was a leader in the genome project that had to do with your DNA. He's an evangelical believer. Pascal, those who love philosophy and science, a believer. Isaac Newton, the inventor of calculus, all you math people, a believer. C. Everett Koop, who at the very time when Christians were struggling with how to answer the AIDS epidemic, came out and said, this is a cause for Christ." That was picked up by some singer named Bono, who is trying to eradicate AIDS in the world, a believer. Two physics professors 54 years ago opened the doors of the church because they wanted a place where you didn't have to check your mind when you came into the building, which is what the narrative said about Christians. In the arts, Rembrandt, Beethoven, Dostoevsky, T.S. Eliot, Tolkien, Lewis, they all did great works. They all were believers, followers of Jesus, the academy, every Ivy League school except for Dartmouth. Sorry, you Dartmouth grads. Was founded by an evangelical pastor or an evangelical layperson. I find it ironic that most often those who promote the narrative that Christians have done nothing for the culture they graduated from these universities founded by evangelicals and they will die in hospitals founded by evangelicals. Think of justice. We and Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln brought slavery to end in England and then in the United States. It was pastors who led the civil rights movement in the United States. Does not mean that we haven't blown it and done poorly from time to time we have but the narrative that, that has taught us is not the narrative of the of the city of god in the world it's not our history and so i ask you if you question christianity just do some research and you will find that the city of god inside the city of man has always worked for the welfare of the city it's always been better off Let me give you the single hope and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper because it's tied to the table. Verse 9. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Do you know what that implies? He did send. Just not them. He did send one. His name was Jesus He came into our wrecked world, into our wrecked lives, into our longing hearts to bring us peace instead of division. Instead of drivenness, we have rest. Jesus was driven to fatigue to cover our drivenness. We were plagued by independence and pride and selfishness. And Jesus came to bring us an other-oriented worldview. Jesus took the disease upon himself that we might be healed. It is Jesus who said, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. What does that look like? The best thing I can say is this old saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Let me just turn it just a little bit, just to make it a little more spiritual. Imitation is the sincerest form of worship. If Jesus did this, and we want to be like Jesus, then that is what we would do. And that is our worship. Let's not live our lives for ourselves, but for those not yet in the city of God. God is refilling his salt shaker here at EP. But only to scatter us into our city. We want to see the city of God inside every arena and place in our Annapolis. Including our schools. One of the really neat things that have happened this year. And, it, and you can tell it was of God, not of us. Because if we had planned it, it wouldn't have happened. But uniquely, when we hired uh, a Megan Erickson into our high school student ministry, she came with a responsibility that we said we would have to honor in order to hire her, t- at least in the beginning. And that was she, the Anne Arundel uh, Young Life uh, had lost its area director and he had gone to seminary. He was a member of our church, gone to seminary. And so they were without a director. And so Megan and her husband Jason uh, fo- were, were carrying that ministry on until they could find somebody. Well, in that time, God has uniquely brought... Lots of students from Broadneck and South River and Annapolis to Christ, and growing them in grace, and that that beauty is we want to see that city of God in every city, in, in every school, and to and to that end, uh, because Jason had done such a good job at Broadneck, they hired him as the Anne Arundel uh, area director for Young Life, member of our church. I asked him if he would stay after church just to greet you afterwards and you can congratulate him to his, to his new role. But that's what I mean by imitating Christ. Going where Christ is not. And every time we go there, we're bringing Christ with us. And one of the way that's happening is in schools, in hospitals, in, in government, in business, in the arts, in the sciences, in all of the areas. I pray that that that's what we are known for. That we're a, we're a church that has been so transformed by Christ that we take Christ with us into the city in which God has planted us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. And as we continue um, this theme of missions and now wrap up, renew, we pray that we never see the end of your renewing of us. But though this curriculum has uh, come to an end uh, today and we celebrate it next week. But you continue to renew us as we are in your word. As we are, have the spirit in us and as we have relationship with God's people. And as we long to see that happen in our city, wherever you place us. In the neighborhoods we live, in the jobs that we have, in the clubs that we're part of, in the relationships you provide. May we bring this whole new value system because of what Christ has done for us into the city. That we might be known as a city of servants. city of people who are dedicated and committed to following you wherever you plant us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.